Ladies and gentlemen, it's 1977 and Eon Productions have a make or break point with the James Bond franchise. Can they come back from two kind of okay Roger Moore films and deliver one of the best in the entire franchise? Well, I damn well think they can. And I can't wait to discuss it on this week's episode of Raven Bond, The Spy Who Loved Me. And here's Stuart Late. Hello, Natalie. Hello, everyone. Yes, you're absolutely right, Natalie. You might be putting your fingers on the scales of any sort of discussion we might be having, but we're definitely, uh, I think this is one of the easily the best Roger Moore film and maybe one of the best in the franchise. I don't care how much I have to sing it, crow it from the rooftops. (laughs) I love this film to bits. I was kind of nervous given that our rewatch has dredged up a lot of, you know, stuff that I didn't want to confront in the Bond films. Sure. You know, my childhood memory of them being all absolutely perfect, which let's be fair, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm being hyperbolic for dramatic purposes, but um, yes. you don't like to discover that your favourites are problematic. That's never fun. It's never a fun experience. But this film, I think, knocks it out of the park in it, so it really many does. Ways. It, it takes several elements from previous films. And I think that at this point, the, the Bond franchise is shamelessly cannibalizing itself. But this is the best possible version of that, where it's it's basically taking old ideas and saying, can we do that any better? And the answer in this case is yes, definitely. <laughs> What's interesting about this film, just as we begin our discussion, is the only thing this film has in common with the book that Ian Fleming wrote is the title. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ian Fleming specifically said to Eon when he sold them the film rights that you can only use the title, The Spy Who Loved Me. I don't want anything about the plot in there. Why was that? Because he saw this as an experiment gone wrong in terms of the book. Oh, his book. Yes. So the book is, and I haven't read it, but I've been reading up on it. I've really got to read more Fleming books. Um, but <laughs> it, it is the only Bond book told from the perspective of a woman that Bond meets. It's told like in the third person, but from a woman's perspective. And right. it's set in America and Bond only appears in the last third of the book and kind of rescues this woman from a, a situation where she's about to be framed for an arson by thugs sure. or something and like it's, that. And it's one of the later books, isn't it? It's sort of like basically Ian Fleming had gotten bored with his own premise and had decided <laughs> to, to muck around with it a bit. Well, what he wanted to do with this book is he had been seeing young people kind of loving James Bond and mm. he was worried particularly about young women thinking that our oh, spies are cool and young boys, I guess, wanting to be a dangerous spy and young girls wanting to, you know, <laughs> sleep with dangerous spies because I guess that's the gender roles we're tied into here but he wanted people to know that people who work in spycraft espionage are not good people and this novel ends with that's really uh, interesting that's yeah, fascinating actually it ends with Bond sort of leaving her a message um, I think a letter or something and then her being told again by like a cop or something who, who comes at the end of the novel just to, to you know clean up whatever police mess is happening to like oh yeah no you don't get involved with people who are involved in espionage you know they're not they're all violent men if they're on the side of bad violent if they're on the side of good still violent and that's the message that Fleming wanted to get across but it's also quite a sexually explicit book so the first two-thirds of the novel is just her talking about her past 
and how she was like forced to have an abortion at one point because the gentleman she slept with didn't want the kid and sent her away and uh, had the story of how she lost her virginity which incidentally is the same way that Fleming lost his virginity like he kind of retells that story right women's perspective but the circumstances are the same apparently and and then how you know these thugs kind of break into this hotel that she's the last staff member at before it closes up for the winter and they then sort of threaten to rape her and it's when she's being held down that Bond turns up going, oh, hello, I'd like a room for the night, just by coincidence. Right. So it's this very strange book that's quite sexually explicit and the way Fleming, from what I've been reading, described it as an experiment that went awry. So I guess it got too much negative attention. So he said, look, you can have the title, but don't use the plot. What was he unhappy about? Does any of it say what he was actually unhappy about? I'm just looking at the Wikipedia page. Broadly, the critics did not welcome Fleming's experiment with the Bond formula. Mm. The reaction was so bad that Fleming wrote to, I guess, his publishers saying, oh, here's the explanation. I'd become increasingly surprised to find my thrillers, which were designed for an adult audience being read in schools and that young people were making a hero out of James Bond. So it crossed my mind to write a cautionary tale about Bond to put the record straight in the minds, particularly of younger readers. The experiment has obviously gone very much awry. And so he said, we should no, do no reprints, no paperback versions. <laughs> It was so banned in a number a of countries. And he's like, that's it, shut it down. Yeah. And I'm just looking at some of the critics' review. Oh, someone said it's like trying to crash your way into a romance novel, a morbid version of Beauty and the Beast, as silly as it is unpleasant. Someone describes it as unremittingly, grindingly boring. <laughs> Jesus. Okay. Well, they weren't holding back. Yeah. I can see so, why he sort of went, okay, never mind. Yeah, I guess he just kind of got, as you say, he he did sort of come and go with the character. You know, he would have moments of going, oh, I don't like him anymore and decide that he probably wasn't going to <laughs> do any more of him and then he'd be convinced <laughs> to do more. It just seems from the Wikipedia page, again, I haven't done a deep, deep dive, but it seems to be the reaction from critics and fans that he tried to kind of suppress it. Right, okay. So because of that, when they went to use the title, they had to totally put together, Eon Productions, I mean, had to totally put together a new film. And they went through a variety of writers. Is that the first time this has happened? I think so. Because that's so, really or, interesting, actually. Because, yeah, like, like I did notice, and it, I, it never even occurred to me, but it's interesting to note that this film really does quite noticeably have several elements from previous films. Basically, it's a remix. Yes. You know, in many ways. It's like putting all of the parts, and, and, and this is something I sort of wanted to say, is all of those kind of ridiculous things, particularly in The Man with the Golden Gun, as we discussed last week, how there were so many fun elements yeah. And so many great characters and moments that we love, but altogether the plot was so finicky, mm. didn't really work. Here it all comes together. And I guess what they're doing is finally going, what is a film of James Bond, as opposed to trying yes. to adapt a novel? Absolutely. You know, yeah, yeah. What is, what is now the essence of Bond? What's like the feeling of Bond? What's not just the, you know, esoteric, but what's the grit of Bond? What's the, what's the sex of Bond? You know, like what's the... The vibe. <laughs> it's the vibe. It's 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 the vibe of it. It's always the vibe. But but you're right. You're absolutely right. And this is the thing. Like from everything that we've seen up until now. So I think this is the tenth Bond film that we in in this series. And you can definitely tell that they are not only drawing from what's come before, but they're distilling it. They're saying, okay, what works about this franchise? You know, what what is the the core of it, the essence of it? You know, and and just putting that on screen, saying, yep, we, we need a Bond villain, we need a Bond girl, we need you know a secret base. You know, we need um you know fight 
fights a henchman, a henchman with a weird gimmick. Yep. One of the best. And they put it all in there and it all just, it works this time out. And it's so fun to see the franchise and especially Roger Moore's version of the franchise firing on all, on all cylinders. It's amazing. So just to touch base finally on the novel, to make a final point, the only thing that they took from the novel, despite Ian Fleming having said no, but he was dead by then, so I guess, you know, no harm, no <laughs> foul. So Jaws and at the start, Jaws has like a buddy. There's two henchmen that Stromberg right, Yes, yes. One is, uh, I think, Jaws Sandor. Jaws and the other one. Chordor, Sand- Sandor, something like that. They were the two kind of hoodlums in the book that inspired those two. So the shorter, really stocky guy had a bald head. That's how he was described in the novel as having a bald head. And then the other guy, the other hoodlum was described as having steel teeth. So, oh, really? Okay, so yeah. that was in the in the book. Yeah, so Cubby Broccoli said to the eventual scriptwriters, can you create a character who's like really big with steel teeth and created one of the legendary, iconic Bond villains? Yeah, I mean, it's it's him and Oddjob, really. Like, I mean, honestly, let's let's be real here. Yeah. And, and Oddjob didn't have a return appearance, so... No, Oddjob got killed. <laughs> Jaws just eats sharks. Yeah, Jaws <laughs> eats the shark. I, I, I cackled with delight when that happened. I was like, you know, you, the sharks don't know what they're in for. It's so good. There's so much to talk about this film. Just before we go to our minute challenge, something to mention that backs up what we were saying last week, and particularly something you were saying, is you know how we saw Roger Moore, you know, threatening to break Maud Adams' arm in that scene in The Man with the Golden yes. Gun, and it, you mentioned that it comes across as really strange because it's not what Roger Moore's Bond should be doing. Mm. Well, Lewis Gilbert was the director on this film and a couple of things about that but the first one being is that he thought they were trying to make Roger Moore too much like Sean Connery in the first two and he went no we've got to play up what Roger Moore is and closer to the books he felt that Roger Moore was sort of more to the book so very English very smooth good sense of humor that was his quote so that's why he came on board and went no we have to angle ourselves towards that slick smooth and that's why in this film I think there's no violence against any women. It's all seduction. Yes, exactly. And that's what Roger Moore's Bond should be. Yes. <laughs> they and get that like, absolutely right. Yeah, it's like the lesson that they've learned and a new director has come in. But I'll also point out that Lewis Gilbert was the director of You Only Live Twice, which also featured a giant lair. Yes, <laughs> a exactly. Lair. And he had the spaceships eating spaceships. I was about to say, and a vehicle that eats other vehicles. That's right. This has got the ships eating submarines. So you're totally right. They recycled some stuff. The plot initially from Richard Maybaum, because a bunch of writers kind of contributed ideas, but then Richard Maybaum, who was a longstanding Bond writer, kind of tried to do a first draft. And his original plan was to have an alliance of international terrorists attacking Spectre's headquarters and deposing Blofeld before trying to destroy the world for themselves to make a new world order. Right. But that was shelved also because our good old friend Kevin McClory from Thunderball. Oh, yes. He had heard that they were trying to use Spectre and, of course, took out legal action to stop them because he was trying to work on getting Never Say Never Again up. Sure. So they had to just shelve any idea of referring to Blofeld and Spectre again. I think that's great because they gave us this mad, unique, webbed hand creature that is Carl Stromberg. Yes, exactly. He's a very good villain, although I do, and, and this is in my list, but I mean, I'll, I'll mention it now, is, is that he comes across as like the home brand Blofeld. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like he's, he's very, like he is very clearly a Blofeld type. Yeah. 
He's got the buttons that open shoots to, to killer animals. Yeah. Yep. You know, he has the underwater base. Like, it's very... like I mean, more so than, like, than a generic Bond villain, he is very much Blofeld with the name Blofeld sort of filed off and with Carl Stromberg written underneath. <laughs> and you can you tell, know, it's, that, it's you know, very, that's yeah. obviously the way that they were going is to have another Blofeld sort of thing. But then they've decided, well, we can't have Spectre, yes. New World Order. I know. Let's have a beautiful new life under the sea. <laughs> under the sea. Amazing. I mean, look, it all works. This is the thing. It does work. It's so batshit insane. I just... I know. It's crazy. Love it. it all works. So his plan is to start a nuclear Armageddon so that he can start a new life under the sea. Like, I mean, presumably he has, like, people down there already. I don't under... I don't fully get... No what his no. whole plan is but he's literally got a model in a tank in his living yes. room which is also in a tank i didn't write this in my list but i want to get into how his atlantis lair structure works how it works because yes. it's supposed to submerge into the sea and come out of the sea but it seems to be mm. just off the coast in maybe like three meters of water <laughs> Yes. <laughs> and, and it's it's a pretty solid structure underneath because Bond goes up through it in the Lotus. Yeah, and then, exactly. But it's able to raise up and down. But also when you think about it, he's got like a shark tank, but it raises up. Like the shark tank raises up with the rest of Atlantis out of the sea. So yes. he's got like a, lift, a tank. <laughs> like So he's got his he's got his windows out into the... It doesn't make sense, Stu. It does not make any sense, like, Natalie. But one of the great things about this movie is the fact that you don't notice that it doesn't make sense until yeah. you're thinking about yeah. it later. Like, that that's the sign of it. While it's happening, you're totally there. Yep, absolutely. Yep, Shark I, Tank, awesome. Great, got it. I don't know why. I started looking up, like, Lipparis, because that's the name of his ship, to find out what Lipparis means. And I still haven't found if it has a reference. It just seems to all, all references on the internet seem to point to Carl Stromberg's ship. But then I found, yes. like, various um, T-shirts, like some random company has made it's like uh, Stromberg Shipping, like Lipperous Stromberg Shipping. And I was like, I'm going to buy a Stromberg Shipping shirt. <laughs> and then I looked further and this company had a whole range of essentially like super villain company. Right. So it's like T-shirts awesome. that say Auric Goldfinger, Switzerland's golden dealer or something like like all this <laughs> in jokey. Did, it ha- did, did they have universal exports? Yes, they did. Oh, awesome. Yeah. <laughs> And then, like, they had um, Crab Key. You can't say no. Oh, cool. I love those ones because, like, it's not like a James Bond T-shirt. So if if a person gets the reference, you're like, ah, my people. Yes, exactly, exactly. And people will appreciate you and go, you went to some thought with your fandom. You thought obliquely. <laughs> you thought uh, perpendicularly, uh, practically. <laughs> There's a word I'm looking for. Anyway, you mentioned something about your list, something that was on your list. Yes. Let's kick off with that. So, yes, list. no, no, I have on there. So, so it was actually the last item on my list was um, the home brand Blofeld, Carl, Carl Stromberg. So that's <laughs> there's that. The first thing that jumped to my mind was, of course, the amazing pre-title sequence with the ski jump. That ski jump. Oh, which is I just, have... which is honestly a amazing stunt. Like a, a very brave person skied right off the edge of a cliff and then opened a parachute in the shape of a British flag. So, I mean, yes. that was that's incredible. And I can tell you his name. Rick Sylvester. He was paid $30,000 right. for the stunt, but the whole thing cost wow. half a million dollars, the most expensive single movie stunt at the time. 
Yeah. I wonder what, what did it cost so much? Safety, I guess, like the amount of crews and helicopters and cameras. Oh, and I guess, yeah, yeah. Planning. Yeah, you, and... want, you want to get it from every angle. <laughs> you don't yeah. want to you don't say, oh, can you, can you do it again? I mean, he probably had to do a test. I haven't watched the behind-the-scenes documentary on my DVD yet, but I assume they probably had to do like a test jump or something. But <laughs> it's just it, it's just such an awesome stunt. Like, cause he, goes, he goes flying off the end and he just hangs in space for ages. And it's just ages. quiet. It's just quiet. Yeah. No music, no nothing, just silence. And then that parachute opens. Oh, it's great. To be honest, I I do wonder sometimes if like that particular scene kind of inadvertently caused Brexit. Do you know what I mean? Like <laughs> it's you feel you feel it's a, a metaphor? It's, no, no, it's just, well, I mean, Brexit would be without the parachute, to be honest. But the, <laughs> Yes, that's right, yeah. <laughs> just the, I don't know, something about it, I'm not a particular, you know, I love British history, but I'm not a great aping fan of, you know, oi, up Britain and that kind of thing. But there's something about it that's so stirring. And I think, I mean, I would hope... <laughs> Not, not, I worry that something. I understand what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Like, to me, it's stirring because I'm like, fuck yes, James Bond is a fucking hero. Like, he's a superstar. <laughs> he's just, he's a god. He's, which are all the things that Ian Fleming didn't want people like me to think about James Bond. No, right, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but we're not talking about gritty down and dirty spy thriller novel James Bond anymore. We're talking about superhero James Bond, and that's a superhero That's movie. right, yeah. We, and we are very firmly in the superhero James Bond era. Yeah, and that's what makes me kind of go, yes! And apparently I was reading at the premiere, here we go, Eon executive Charles Duro said that at a screening attended by Charles, Prince of Wales, during the Union Jack parachute scene, although technically it's the Union flag because it's only the Union Jack when it's at sea, just for the penance. Just some flag penetry there. So he said, I have never seen a reaction in the cinema as there was that night. You could not help but stand up. Even Prince Charles stood up (laughs) and applauded that scene. And I can get, like, imagine being in the cinema seeing that for the first time. You know, I've watched this film so many times and that scene just still, like, gets me. You know, just the ridiculousness, the over the top, the fact that he's for some reason in this incredibly loud yellow jumpsuit. (laughs) But then, you know, but then he proceeds it with um, because he gets his he gets this amazing yeah. message on his watch, which you know w- would have been like high technology at the time. It's like it's like one of those punch yeah, gun. A dialogue. Yeah, yeah. His watch has a labeler in it. How? How does it have the? How does it have the sticky? Yeah, where does it come from? Like, yeah, where does that? Where does that tape come from? It's his crazy. Watch. And then he gets the message, and then he's with the, the girl who turns out to be a, a Russian agent, which is great. They always do. But they always do. But he says, you know, I, I have to, I have to go. And she goes, oh, James, don't go. I need you. And he's like, so does England. It's amazing. It's amazing. This is, and this is my point. I worry that like the fetishization sometimes of that quintessentially English superhero, because superheroes, I think if, if you were to ask me what culture they're associated with, I would say America, you know? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the, the cape and, and powers superheroes. Yes, absolutely. All of that kind of superhero. And yes, I know that they have people of all different colors, races, creeds, but the culture they came out of was this American pop culture. And I know that British cartoons tended to be more like boys' own adventures and... Yeah, like, like two-fisted tales and that sort yeah, of thing. Yeah, or like, here's a young chap in the war, kapow, let's knock out a Japanese soldier, you know. 
Or, like, I mean, you know, from, from that earlier era, not, not even Sherlock Holmes, but like Alan Quartermain, like, you know, like yes. uh, doing that sort of thing. Colonial. Explorer, explorers, colonial style, yes. up, explorers up, and, and adventurers. Up the empire, let's go enslave a bunch of people, make them do stuff. We're great, you know? And again, I'm not saying it's right, but that's not right. I, but <laughs> That's how I get the culture of like that British superhero-ness and this James Bond is kind of coming out of that almost more so than coming out of a gritty World War II era spy you know this is that kind of British superhero the gentleman in the tuxedo who can jump off a cliff parachute unfolds and then you just have a cut shot of Roger Moore like you know very dapperly sort of floating down like he hasn't just jumped off a gigantic cliff into nothing yes (laughs) you know (laughs) It's that whole, huh, like, I'm surprised he didn't have a cigar. Absolutely. He absolutely should. He should have had a cigar. <laughs> this is have. the thing. He should have had a cigar the whole time. <laughs> that would have made it perfect. While skiing. <laughs> While skiing down the, down the hill. In what I now realise, and this is the thing, I've only ever seen this movie sort of out of context. So, so I've seen this movie many times before, but only in and of itself. I've never seen it in order with the other films because this is the first time we're doing this. And so... I now realise that this whole sequence is actually a weird callback, throwback sort of thing to On Her Majesty's Secret Service, which has the elaborate ski chase, you know? Like, so they're they're pulling from that even. Yeah. It's crazy. It's so good. So, I mean, the ski jump is the first, I mean, that's the first thing that that leapt to my mind when I did the minute challenge, because I was like, you know, that's such an amazing stunt and such a great way to open the film. And I mean, it's one of the best cold opens. There's been very few that are better than this one. I think according to my research, the jump got listed as one of the best scenes in the Bond franchise, like the second best after, do you expect me to talk? No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. And I'm down for that. Like, it's so good. Yeah, absolutely. It's so good. The next thing that is also very, very good on my list is uh, a car that turns into a submarine, which is amazing. The Lotus Esprit. The Lotus Esprit. Now, Now, does he keep this for another couple of films? No. Oh. I'm trying to remember whether or not he whether or not he I... does. But I mean, well, we'll find out in the next couple of weeks. But I remember it being in multiple films. Maybe this just looms so large in my memory because I I have always remembered the car that turns into a submarine. It's awesome. It's so iconic. And oh, so I'm just trying to find the bit of oh, here we go. Uh, this is from the Wikipedia page. So the head of public relations at Lotus Cars had heard that Eon was shopping for a new Bond car. He drove a prototype nice. Lotus Esprit with all Lotus branding taped over it and parked it outside the Eon offices at Pinewood Studios. On seeing the car, Eon asked Lotus to borrow both of the prototypes for filming. Initial filming of the car chase sequence resulted in disappointing action sequences. While moving the car between shoots, Lotus test driver Roger Becker so impressed the crew with his handling of the car that for the rest of the filming on Sardinia, Becker became the stunt driver. How good is that? Oh, wow, okay. Yeah, the actual Lotus stunt driver did all the driving, but the car was so new (laughs) that, (laughs) you know, nobody knew how to drive it properly. Yeah, I was going to say, was it just that it was so like so advanced that no one knew how to drive it properly? I'm not sure. It doesn't say, but I, I mean, crazy. you can imagine if it's a prototype. <laughs> you know, the bumps haven't been smoothed out yet, but someone who's been yeah, that's true. driving that's true. it since it started is going to have a better knowledge. They kept him around to <laughs> to be Bond. Back then, it becomes a submarine, Stu. It becomes it a submarine. It certainly does. 
with little and, wings on the side. Oh, and and the, the wheels. All the fans come out the back. Yeah. Fold in, and then the, the dashboard flips so it becomes both. Yeah, the dashboard. For some reason, that's the most impressive thing to me is that the dashboard flips so that now you can, you've got the submarine controls. Stuff and like then, that is like catnip to me. I love it. Oh, it's so good. You know, the whole thing when he drives, and they do a bait and switch, which is a bit. You know, it's a bit silly because the whole point of this film is he and Anya Amasova, and we'll we'll get to her. But you know, it's this constantly little <laughs> one-upping and sniping, and you know who's better, yeah. Britain or Russia, and you know all this sniping. And uh, then <laughs> he's like, "Can you swim?" And they just drive off the edge of a jetty, and she has a look <laughs> of like, "Oh!" And then she's looking in wonder as it transforms into a submarine. But then later on, when they're attacked by scuba divers, she knows where mm. to press the button for the um, smoke screen, like the octopus function. The yeah, squid she makes function. a joke about I, we, we had the plans for this two years ago. Yeah, so she shouldn't have been that surprised, but maybe it took yeah. her a while to remember. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> But yes. Still, I mean, you know, it, it's a very, very cool Bond vehicle. One of the best. Yeah, I think uh, it's listed in, in various lists that people do. You know, the Aston Martin DB5 from Goldfinger is number one. This car oh, is yeah. number two. And Absolutely. I'm, I'm with that for sure. It's a great car. <laughs> it is a very good car. Uh, the next item on my list, uh, we've already mentioned him, but Jaws, oh. the best. So good. Such a great villain. Like just and this. Not a line of dialogue. Not a line. No, of di- not a single line. I thought I thought he had like a couple of lines, but then I'm I'm misremembering because obviously he has a couple of lines in Moonraker. Yes. But um, just amazing. Like genuinely unsettling in the sense of like he's just this unstoppable killing machine that that is pursuing Bond and Anya throughout the plot. The Cairo sequence, particularly at the pyramids, when he appears yes. in the like the shadow of the pyramids as the light show is going on with that yeah, really yeah, atmospheric spooky music and the voiceover and then the, the the music which um was composed by marvin hamlish who's a famous american composer died a few years ago but worked a lot with sort of barbara streisand and in musicals and broadway which explains before i forget you know at the very end of the film which we'll talk about oh yeah yeah i was gonna say Breaks into like a jaunty, nobody does, ha, it better, ha, ha, like a Broadway jaunty It's a chorus line is what that is. It's a chorus line. (laughs) And I'm like, oh, that's why, because it's Marvin Hamlish who was a Broadway dude. So, of course, he has to have his That is maybe... Yeah, I was going to say that that's maybe the one misstep, I think, of the entire film. Because I know the, the whole film is pretty campy, but that's that's high camp. Like, like that's I a carry-on that, film at that point. Like, it's a tag to, like, Bond has just said, you know, what are you doing, 007? Keeping the British end up, sir. Nobody British does. Up, sir. It's a tag. Like, it's the best way to tag that joke. I, <laughs> I love it. You won't win me on that one. I don't know. For for me, it's a it's a tiny step too far. I would have I would have liked a, a fade into the to the theme, just the normal thing. <laughs> you know. But anyway, like like that it. it it's a half a point off. It's very, very, still very, very good. But yeah, back to, to Jaws at the Pyramids. As a kid, that whole sequence terrified the life out of me. Where Jaws yeah, is talking Fekesh, who for some reason has a key to one of the tombs at the Temple of Giza. <laughs> yes, actually. No. Actually, I was reading that they couldn't get the lighting right, so the Sphinx is real, but then they had to, like, mat the, the pyramids in, so they use miniatures for the pyramids and, like, CGI'd them. Oh, well, okay. As best CGI was back in the day. They weren't real. They couldn't get the angles and the lighting right, so to do it. Well, that's really cool, actually, because I, but, I didn't notice that at all. Yeah, but the Sphinx is real. But the way that the different colours fall on Jaws's face and that music like that, <laughs> 
scared the shit out of me. And then he was like stalking. He's like a Terminator, you know. He's just kind of walking. He is. There's a very Terminator air about him. Yeah, he's just this unstoppable force. And he just, you know, grabs this guy and then kills him just by sort of biting his neck. And you don't see blood because obviously, you know, kids are going to watch this film. But <laughs> but it's a I mean, that would be, way to die. That would be horrific. I mean, you think about it, like he's basically like ripped out his jugular, yeah. right? Like like that, that area would be a slaughterhouse yes. at this point. Like there would be blood everywhere. <laughs> and his face would be bloody, but he doesn't seem to get that. He just seems to like apply pressure or something. And it's, it's weirdly intimate as well because it's almost like a vampire yes he's like a cross between a terminator and dracula yeah that's it he's he's, he's a, a dracula dracula a dracula dracula <laughs> jaws aka draculator the draculator the, but i mean he just he, so he's an extra but they, they never ever even explain because even odd job gets like a backstory they do not explain what his deal is they just say right? he's a we, freelance assassin that's what yeah um, exactly and they're like yeah. but also he has like what I assume are metal, like, because he's got metal teeth. But then at one stage, he gets like, like Bond, like punches him in the in the in the face, and like <laughs> does the ow, oh, I hurt my hand. And like there's like company. a noise, like he's just hit a metal plate. Yeah. You know, it's just crazy. So we're we're, th- we're like, wait, does he have a metal skeleton? Like, what <laughs> what's going on? Like his, his is whole, he is he a human? His whole jaw has been replaced by like steel. That's what we're led to believe. And so it's like, okay, well, what's his deal? Why did that happen? We never find out. Is he like Wolverine? Did he lose his yeah. memory and some, was yeah, exactly. the, the victim of some sort of medical experiment? <laughs> Famously, Richard Keel, who plays Jaws, of course, the legendary Richard Keel, yes. died a few years ago. He hated wearing the braces because they were very painful to wear. So he would only be able to really wear them for like five, ten minutes at a time. And then he'd get, you know, a splitting mm. headache from wearing these things. So... They really tried to nail down when he, you know, okay, it's time for a smile shot or it's time for you to kill. So yeah, yeah. put the teeth in, let's do the take and stop. So that's why you see him a lot of time of the time. And it makes sense why he doesn't talk. Um, <laughs> I don't know whether it was a chicken came first sort of scenario, but it would be much harder having to wear those braces <laughs> yeah. and then try to talk. So. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You, you wonder you wonder if there was like a four-page monologue that he had in the original script and then they had to cut it all, you know. <laughs> he had a very uh, Dr. No style uh, explanation of his backstory. Yeah, exactly. you know, raised by raised by Hungarian uh, circus people. Yes, well, that would make sense because he was 2.18 metres tall. Yes, um, he was a very tall man. And Roger Moore is tall. And then you see yes. him next to Jaws and you're like, what the hell? What the hell? Kind of like Baron Samdi in, in Live and Let Die. Um, yeah, absolutely. Tiki, like he's, were... he's very big. He's a big man. And and Bond just is like, <laughs> uh, 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 uh. so yeah, just uh, we'll talk more about Jaws, but continue with your list. Yes. So speaking of the pyramids, uh, I had on my list uh, Pyramid Base for MI6 oh. slash uh, the Russian agency, which I was great. Absolutely fantastic. And Love Q a secret has, base in Q the pyramids. A, Why not? Q has a workshop in there. Hugh has a full-on workshop in those pyramids. In That's pyramids. amazing. And he has a tea tray, like a tea service on a tray, on a, like yes. a hyper-magnetized hovercrafty type <laughs> serving conveyor. Um, and it just goes and decapitates a dummy at the end. And then he says, <laughs> I want that ready for so-and-so's tea party. Yeah, I know. Yeah, that was so good. So great. Yeah, Q was great in this. M, I, I, I didn't have this on my list, but while I while I think of it, M was strangely um, 
like chipper in this movie. Mm. Uh, he's been ve- he's been very grumpy the last couple of movies, and in yeah. this one he kind of goes back to being sort of a bit more, <laughs> you know, like he's he's like smiling a bit and sharing some knowing looks with with Bond and, and all that well, sort of thing. So it's actually because they're trying to outperform the Russians. So because yes, they're, yes, now exactly. working, they're now working with Gogol who's the uh, KGB head of spies. Right, dude. okay, yes. And he actually was in From Russia With Love. You might recognise him. He played a different character. Mm. Um, Mozeni or Mozeni? He was on um, Spectre Island, I think. But, yeah, so he comes back now and plays Gogol for a number of subsequent films. But, yeah, so it's this big, you know, dick-swinging contest between Bond and Triple X <laughs> as to who can get the microfilm. Yes. And, of course, Triple X sneaks it from Bond while well, after she blows, you know, poisonous cigarette smoke in his face and he passes out. But he's already checked the microfilm on his little portable... On his little portable microfilm viewer. Little portable microfilm viewer, so he's able to... The height of 1977 technology. I know. It made me think, just as a sidebar, they got the microfilm off the Max Kalper at the club in uh, Cairo. They're trying to bid for it, but then he goes to take an important phone call and, of course, Jaws kills him in the booth. So I don't know if Jaws... Jaws is posing as a repairman. Not sure if he told someone that he had a call or how he rigged that up, but he rigs it up. And it just made me think the number of people who in films gone past have been killed because they've had to like, excuse me, I have to go answer a phone call, you know, because there were no <laughs> mobiles. <laughs> like, can you yes, imagine? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. That wouldn't happen now. That's like one of those examples of technology rendering plot devices to completely useless because yeah, you're like, absolutely. oh, I'm sorry, I have to take this. I'm just going to walk over here, <laughs> but I'm not going to walk into a phone booth where I can be easily, you know, ambushed by a giant with steel teeth. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. That common complaint that people have. So there's all this, the, the, they get the microfilm and it's who's seen it, who's not. And when uh, Bond says, oh, it's it's Stromberg Laboratory. He has one in Corsica, I believe. And and uh, it's a oh, well done, 007. Like, good work well getting done, your, 007. Good work getting your dick out and really showing those Russians how long it is. <laughs> and well, as we all know, James Bond has a magic penis. It's magical. So. Yeah, it, it glows. You know, it's it's, it's like of, a lightsaber. Yeah, it's hypnotic. <laughs> and then um, Anya uh, Amasova says, actually, it's in Sardinia. And yeah. Gogol's like, huh, look at the Russian ovaries. Woo! I was trying to think. <laughs> Can I just say that I love the fact that her code name is Triple X because all I could think of was the Vin Diesel movies? Yeah. <laughs> yes, Agent Triple X. I'm like, come on, man. Wasn't Triple X like a porn code for a long time? Like. A triple X movie. Well, I mean, you know, yeah, exactly. Like rated rated triple X was was a, yeah. a porno thing. Yeah, absolutely. But um, like obviously Vin Diesel famously starred as a as an extreme James <laughs> Bond type. Yeah. Agent. yeah, wasn't he like a like a one of those guys who films himself driving? He was an, ex- he was an extreme bridge. games person type person. Yeah, like like a base jumper slash snowboarder slash anything that was cool in the very late nineties. And yeah, got recruited to to do missions. <laughs> Just ridiculous. That that movie, I I rewatched it recently, completely um unrelated to anything that, really? that we were doing. But like it, it came up, and I was like, man, I haven't seen this movie since it came out. Uh, it's not very good, Natalie. <laughs> like, like everything that they accuse James Bond of being, like the, the like vacuous, 
infantile, aimed at teenage boys. Like, that's triple X. <laughs> they made a sequel. extremely, extremely shit. They made a sequel, though, didn't they? But, like, years they after did. the yes, original. State, State of the Union. No, no, no. Well, it, it was it was a couple of years later. There was there triple was X, and then there was triple X State of the Union. And then I think Vin Diesel was trying to circle back around after the Fast and the Furious movies got, like, good. Oh, actually, yes, sorry. There was. I've I've just looked it up. So the first one was 2002. God, that's so much later than I thought it was. (laughs) I thought it was, like, mid-'90s. That's insane. And then there was Triple X State of the Union, which came out in 2005. So they were quite close to one another, relatively. And then there was Triple X The Return of Xander Cage in 2017. There's a big jump. But of course, by 2017, Vin Diesel had had a lot of success with the Fast and the Furious movies. So he had some cachet to sort of go back and go, hey, I, I quite like those movies. Can we do one of them again? I think oh, man. more depth to the character. Well, this is the thing, because he didn't come back for the second one, right? Like, So this is the insane thing. So Vin Diesel was in the first one, then apparently was approached to be in the second one. And he was like, no, 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 I'm too good for that. <laughs> <laughs> what? And so instead they instead they got Ice Cube, who was the new Triple X. And then Vin Diesel came back for the 2017, like the return of Xander Cage. I'm just looking. Oh, man. Oh, God, they got, oh, God, they got Lee Tamahori to come in and direct. He'd just done Die Another Day. And yes, yeah, yeah. Him in to do State of the Union. But Die Another Day, yep. he had been hugely commercially successful, which of course, it, of course it was. Like they, they get more commercially successful every time. Uh, doesn't mean that that film doesn't have some serious issues. <laughs> we, we will get into that. Belong to the director. But yeah, wow. So how can you have a movie called Triple X and not have the guy playing Triple X? It just seems weird, but I suppose. Well, because, because, and this is the insane thing. So Triple X then is obviously like the code name for him in the same way that people have that theory that like James Bond is a code name. Well, you know who has that theory? Lee Tamahori, the director of the second one. Of course, yes. I remember reading articles with him at the time and the way he conceives James Bond is that it's a code name and they're all different men, but it's a code name. That is not true. But anyway. (laughs) Like, yeah, it's really difficult to understand how someone who was alive and well and working in the 40s is still alive and well and very hot working in the 2020s. But it's also a fantasy, so... Yeah, exactly. And he's, he's like Robin Hood at this point. Like, he's sort of just this timeless... You know, I mean, you, you know, we, we don't have Robin Hood, you know, in the modern day. But, like, you know, I mean, how long was Robin Hood active for? Like, when was he, like, running around? How many years was he in, in Sherwood Forest, you know? Like, there's this thing that happens with these these stories where they just... That they become myth almost, you know? Yeah. Like, there's not a, a, a firm timeline anymore. There, there was, and we're hitting that point. That's what's so fascinating about this film it, in, on top of the fact that, you know, there's an interesting uh, remix of all the previous films, we're 10 films in, into the franchise at this point. Mm. And there's even continuity because um, at one point, Barbara Bach's character, Amesova, references his dead wife and yeah. he, he like reacts to it, you know, which yeah. is really interesting. At least for now, they're still within continuity, but I feel like they slowly start dropping it after this one. Like, like it starts to sort of become more timeless or at least the current film is all that matters. Whereas previously, you know, they've all been of a piece and they've all followed on from one another. Yes, particularly the earlier ones. 
flowed mm. one to two to three. Yeah, all, all the Conner, all the early Conneries sort of followed on from one another, and then even when they moved on to George Lazenby and then back to to Connery, there was there was that sense of continuity. Like if even if the actor was changing, the character was the same, and this was the same film series. And now that they're sort of three movies into the Roger Moore era, you can feel that starting to become a bit more elastic. Mm. As it sort of gets, as they become more like, okay, what can this movie be? You know, it's very, it's very interesting to see because this is what will happen to the franchise until it eventually, like they do a very soft, but really very hard reboot of the series with the first Daniel Craig, James Bond, Casino Royale, where they just, they just sort of hit the reset button on the entire franchise, basically, except they then take several elements from the Pierce Brosnan era, which just muddies the waters even more. Yes. It's it's a it's a big mishmash. We'll 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 get to that when we get there. But but um just, just to finish off my list. <laughs> exactly. Yes, we have all the time in the world. So I I wrote down that uh, Barbara Bach is awesome. It's okay. a shame that she still needs to be rescued. Well, yeah, I guess in some ways, yeah, it is incongruous with. I feel like they had to get a point where they're in a sexy escape pod together to do the final bit. <laughs> Yes, exactly. And so I think they had to manufacture a situation to raise the stakes there to make sure that when they destroy Atlantis, she's already there, Bond's gone to rescue her. Maybe these days it would swap and you'd have Bond being taken captive and then, you know, Amasova would bust in going, I'm here to save you, sorry, ass. But I still yeah, totally. Or, or, or alternately, like you know, that they're both involved in like a covert plan to bring down the base or something like that. You know, I just found it really interesting that like they they do a lot of good work throughout the movie to sort of make her bonds equal in many ways. Like she's she's his opposite number in in Russia, and then at the very end they just turn her into a damsel in distress because it's like, oh, well, what's she gonna do? We've got all these 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 sailors, these navy men here. They they can they can shoot guns and blow up stuff. She can lie on a couch and look pretty. It was yeah. It, it is strange weirdly enough it's one of those things where at the time it was happening didn't really notice and now that you said no, exactly like, yeah it's one of those things exactly yeah, yeah. but it the movie just keeps barreling along with such like such energy and everything is awesome yeah this movie just flies by you know given that we always talk about thunderball being two hours ten this movie <laughs> is... no no actually no no natalie i'll, I'll just issue a, a small correction there it's actually um exactly three days long I've checked. I've gone back and had a look. It's it's the full the full seventy two hours. Um, it's it's a, a very long film. But this one is you know almost the same approximate time that they claim it is anyway. But it rockets along. It feels I was watching it today, going, oh my god, it's over. Like I was so. They even have, and this this is astonishing. They even have an underwater sequence that isn't an interminable bore. <laughs> actually was meaning i had that down somewhere to ask you because they filmed some of the underwater sequences in nassau yeah, i um, saw that i saw that yeah uh where they did thunderball of course and i was like oh gee i wonder if Stu's going to be turned off by the underwater scene. <laughs> <laughs> well no because they obviously learned from their mistakes because the underwater scenes were action-packed and and quickly edited we don't have to see the tense painstaking process of every single thing <laughs> happening one after another and everyone's slowly moving through the water he's so bitter well the other factor is bond and anya are in a car so they're in a sub car a car that's true you get to see their whole faces 
you know, you know who yes. they are. They're chased by some faceless goons in yellow wetsuits, so that's fine. We don't need to know who they are. We just need to know they have harpoons. No. So it's a lot tighter. It's a, it makes a lot more sense. But the other thing that doesn't make sense is why does he take her? Because when they first go out to meet Stromberg and he's pretending to be a marine biologist. <laughs> Sorry, I just yes. I love that whole scene so much. Oh, that's great. When they're met by Naomi, Stromberg's very sexy assistant who works in a bikini yeah. for some reason, sure. she says, are you having a nice holiday or something like that? And, and, and Bond goes, where there is an ocean, a marine biologist is never. <laughs> <laughs> and you just wonder if he's been incorporating that into every every question that he's been asked. <laughs> you know, like- what would you like for lunch, Mr. Bond? Uh, Mr. Mr. Whatever. Ah, well, a marine biologist would never have seafood. It's just like, don't worry, I'm deep undercover. No one's <laughs> The key to being an effective spy is just repeating yes, the cover story. Well, this is once again a perfect example of James Bond is the worst spy. <laughs> He's just a terrible spy. <laughs> and then when, when he meets um, Stromberg and he says, oh, I, I'm sure you can tell me what this fish is. And Bond looks at it and it looks like a lionfish or something like that. But Bond looks really weirdly nervous for a few seconds. Like, uh oh, I'm being caught out on my marine biologist cover story. <laughs> but when got in to see him, he clearly has to have been boning up on some sort of marine biology to get by. And uh, so he looks a bit nervous and then goes, oh, yes, of course, it's this. <laughs> It's just these little moments that I love where you think, oh, oh, is he in trouble? No, 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 he's totally fine. He's got it covered. He's got this. (laughs) There's no danger here. There's no tension, which should completely deflate the film, but it doesn't for some reason. I don't, it's this weird alchemy. (laughs) Yeah, so Anya, when they go to meet him, she doesn't even meet him. She's down with Naomi looking at the model of the Liparus. So... Why and then Stromberg sees her obviously on on cameras because he's a voyeur and he's got cameras everywhere and a, and a small TV screen, a very high tech series of buttons <laughs> <laughs> and like a, a tiny original Mac sized screen. He can definitely see Anya and when they were taking hostage after the American sub is taken by the Liparus and he works out that it's her, so he knows what she looks like. But then he just decides to take her back to his Atlantis lair where he puts her in this very sexy dress yes, yes, ties her to a bed and then is like kind of clawing at her with his webbed fingers, which, by the way, they don't make a big enough deal of those. No, um, they really don't. I nearly missed it. I'm like, wait, does he have like something weird with his hands? And I'm like, yes, yes, he does. That's crazy. That's why he's obsessed with, like, being a fish man under the sea because he's yes, like... Yes, exactly. He wants to be a fish man, yeah. <laughs> I've got webbed fingers, so clearly sea life is better. But, it, you know, they really could have put more... Maybe they did and then people thought it was too disgusting or something. But then he's like, oh, gosh, you are beautiful. So it's not really clear why he takes her. It's just a plot device because she's Bond's girl, you know. Yes, she's yeah, her own exactly. very efficient kick-ass spy, but she's, for the purposes of this point in the film... It's Bond's girl who's he's got to go after her. Even though there is the there is the complication of she's already found out that Bond killed her lover. Her lover. Uh, for one of a better term. And has vowed that like once the mission is over, she'll kill him. I feel like they don't quite wring all of the tension out of that that they could, but you know, I guess there's other things to get to. Yeah, it's really interesting because I forgot about the whole oh, we're getting off the list, but just just as a 
point. I totally forgot about the train scene where Triple X opens the cupboard. She kind of, they have dinner, they go back to the cabins. Bond goes, how about a night? Mm. Opens the door and he's got champagne at the ready because he's James Bond. Yes. And she's like, oh, tomorrow's going to be a big day. I'm going to get some sleep. And he's like, oh, cock blocked. Okay. And... <laughs> And then you see her hanging. Roger Moore does some great facial acting in this. Absolutely, yeah. He's very petulant when he goes back and he's just sort of there, you know, with his open bottle of champagne that now isn't going to get drunk. Yeah. And then you see her hanging up her dress, opens the cupboard, and Jaws is in the cupboard! It's Jaws in the cupboard! How? I had so totally good. forgotten that that was a thing that happened in this film, and I freaked out and also <laughs> pissed myself laughing because... How did he get in? I mean, I guess he broke in while they were at dinner, sure. But how did he get in the cupboard? Yeah, I know. Like, like I mean, especially a train cupboard. Like, it's, that man is over two metres tall. How is he in there? He's kind of ducked, but I don't even think they would go that tall on a train. Anyway, so <laughs> they have the big fight on the train with Bond, or she gets knocked out, and so Bond fights him off and throws him out the window and whatnot. And then he just gets up and dusts himself off. I love that about, about Jaws. Yeah. Like, it yeah. makes you wonder, like, I mean, I do wonder whether or not they wanted him to come back because he survives the film. He just swims away at the end. You know, Like, I, it's just so bizarre. My theory is because he had gotten away with so many random situations that he gets thrown out of a train, picks him up, dusts himself off. Bond collapses like half a rebuilt temple on him, gets up, dusts himself off. Uh, that, you know, I think maybe that was in keeping with the character of Jaws. Like he just, you can't defeat him that easily. Yeah, exactly. So, but I'm sure they must have been thinking at some point, like, I wonder if this guy could make a comeback. Because, uh, I mean, he's unique in in the history of the Bond films where he's a henchman who, like, has a has a return appearance. Exactly. It's crazy. I don't think it happens again. But I'm sorry, I interrupted your point. No, well, my point was just it doesn't really make sense why Stromberg takes Anya because he doesn't seem to be a sexual person. Well, except, except that he does get extremely horny when he sees her. Like, he obviously is like, ah, yes, I repopulate the sea with my progeny. You will release your eggs. I will release a cloud of sperm. that will fertilize them that is how it works correct it works yeah i love stromberg i know you say he's blofeld light but oh no but he's still a delight like i mean like he's he's very much a bond villain it's great i i love it i just noticed that it it was very blofeldy that's all he's almost the bondiest of bond villains and he just has so many lines at the end he's like (laughs) observe mr bond the instruments of armageddon and <laughs> the world is corrupt and it's already on the decline. I am merely accelerating the process. And oh, oh, yes, so, so great. Back to your list. Yes, no, sorry. So I, I had two more things and there was, we've already talked about one of them. So there's the home brand Blofeld in Carl Stromberg and also the fact that his base is the Legion of Doom headquarters. I swear to God, it's the Legion of Doom headquarters from, from DC Comics. And you can you can look it up. It was in the comics and it was especially, it was, in the, it was in the Super Friends cartoon. And I wonder if they based it on this because it looks like a, a big black skull basically, but it looks very similar to Stromberg's hideout Atlantis. So I do wonder if there was some cross-pollination there i'm not sure now this was our good old friend ken adam who came back for this film and he designed atlantis genius genius design it's amazing it's possibly my favorite lair that's a big call but i'm right there with you that's crazy well i mean look i don't know how it works i don't understand the logistics of it And but it some, looks so cool. It does. And sometimes it seems, oh, it's this size. And then you see another perspective and go, holy shit, it's like 
three times bigger than I thought it was. And <laughs> yeah, that's right. Because obviously, like, wait, how big is it? And where are they? And yeah. <laughs> and also, Bond posing marine biologist Naomi comes to collect the pair of them and takes them out to Atlanta. So Mr. Stromberg's very busy. We must go now. And they drive out in the boat, motor out in the boat, and then look upon Atlantis just sitting there in the water. And I was yes. laughing, going, "How has no government noticed this?" <laughs> it's not the sort of thing that goes unnoticed by world authorities. Um, it seems that a, a eccentric rich billionaire is um building an evil base. Um, we should probably look into that. It's just like nobody had gone out from the CIA or anything to go. Hi, Mr. Stromberg. <laughs> We're just wondering why your laboratory looks like some sort of cartoonish. Villainous lair. Are you a cartoonish villain? No, I merely like fish and want humanity to die. Well, all seems fine here. You're clearly passionate about life. <laughs> Although, I mean, having said that, to be perfectly fair, a good analogy for Carl Stromberg in the modern world is someone like Elon Musk, who is currently building rockets to send people into space. So, I mean, the, the parallels are there. It's funny that you mentioned Elon Musk because Stromberg was like early on anyway, he's all in like black skivvies. And I wrote down a note like the Steve Jobs yes. of Bond villains. Yes, very Jobsian vibe. Yeah, because he's just, he's like a shipping magnate. But there's no more backstory than that, apart from he's one of the world's richest men and wants to live under the sea. Under the sea. <laughs> <laughs> I can't. That, that old, that classic archetype. It's the Homer Simpson gag of, hey, family, we're going to leave and start a new life under the sea. A new life under the sea. Like, that's one of those Simpson gags that I just use in so many instances. I'll be like, yes. I'm just going to start a new life under the sea. Under the sea. <laughs> Oh, it's so good, Stu. Uh, he, wants, he wants the world to be destroyed by nuclear weapons in a subsequent war so he can live under the sea with some other people. Absolutely. Why not? And then well, and with an thinking. unspecified number of people. This is the thing. Like, <laughs> he obviously has his army of henchmen who are, I guess, money is buying their allegiance. But if the world ends, like, <laughs> they don't have anywhere to spend their money. So I'm not sure how he's keeping them all in line. But and can I also say, first large scale group of henchmen to be wearing bear. Did you notice? It's very jaunty. It's very jaunty. I did notice that he had a very large, like, Spectre-style, you know, matching uniforms and everything. They all had the jumpsuits. I didn't clock the berets, but you're, you're right. That, that's very true. Mm, a little extra bit of flair for the 70s. Absolutely. <laughs> Well, you know, you got to be stylish when you're, you, you, when you, <laughs> you don't want your henchmen to be uh, fashion forward, you know? <laughs> Well, should I go through my list if you're done and then we can continue? Yes, that, that is my list. <laughs> I feel like this podcast is going to be a long one because I just love this movie and want to talk about everything. And, and just to, to put a pin in that that last scene we were talking about when Strombergen meets James Bond undercover as a marine biologist. So he goes out there as a marine biologist to see the laboratory, but he just goes in and has a conversation with Stromberg about how he doesn't yeah, like, like the outside world. conversation. Yeah. He's recluse. Oh, look, I'm surrounded by sea creatures, beauty, ugliness, and death. Here's my crazy plan for an under-the-sea uh, retirement village. And, okay, bye then. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and then, All right, nice to see you. And then Bond has this line, which is so, oh, it's so sucky-uppy. <laughs> Uh, Stromberg says, good luck with your research. I can't do his voice. I want to do his uh, good luck with your research. And uh, 007 sort of turns back and says, uh, thank you. The, the you've shown me here today has only encouraged me to redouble my efforts. 
<laughs> what does that mean? It's so suck uppy. Uh, crawling. It's it's I don't know, there's something about it that's just hilarious to me. It's like, no, don't worry, I will be a mother. Yeah, no, no, it's it's just very strange. But it's like strange in a great way. I want to make that really, really clear. Like I as far as I'm concerned, this movie can really do no wrong. So Yeah, we we we're very much uh, nibbling at the edges of, of a masterpiece. <laughs> much like the shark tried to nibble at the edge of jaws. Exactly. Oh, Exactly. I should have said that the other way. Much like Jaws, nibbled around the edge of a shark. So my <laughs> list is just a lot of all caps, a lot of exclamation marks. Starts yeah, with absolutely. sweet, fuck, I love this movie. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, Atlantis, Stromberg, Jaws. And then I've written Roger Moore in a tux. Oh, yes, of course. Now, this is something I wanted to point out about the Roger Moore era, which I've forgotten for the past two films. I think it started with Live and Let Die. But the gun barrel sequence, as we know, used to be Sean – well, it wasn't Sean Connery. It was a stuntman. And then George Lazenby did his. But I think they were both wearing business suits and hats. I can't remember if George Lazenby was wearing a hat. But Roger Moore is the first one who does it in a tux – with no hat. That is the way it remains. Every Bond gun barrel. Yes, I mean, that, that's the iconic one, yeah. Bond is in a tuxedo, no hat, bang. And that's Roger Moore. But we haven't seen him in a tuxedo before because remember, they wanted to give some distance between Sean Connery mm. and how well he fells out he's of time. He's been in some extremely 70s fashion up he until has. now. He has. He's got a couple in this one. Uh, he's certainly got a few epaulette jackets, like when he goes to Cairo. There's a brilliant shot of him arrive, like in Cairo, and he walks into a silhouetted shot, and it's just him in a like a corridor in shadow with mm. a minaret in the far distance, and the music goes. Yeah. Wah, 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 wah. It's like this disco Egyptian sound that they do, <laughs> and it gives me chills. It gives me chills, and then Bond's just walking around, you know, ruins or whatever, old Cairo town, and finding where yeah. Fetch lives. It's just great. It's like, boom, boom. I love the soundtrack of this film. It's so atmospheric, but also a bit waka waka campy. It's, mwah, love it. Well, it reminded me. It reminded me a little bit of um, the War of the Worlds soundtrack. There was that that electronic sort of music elements to it and that everything. Yeah, for sure. I can see the similarity. A lot of organ work. And, yeah. yeah. But yes, the, the tuxedo, this is the first time we see Roger Moore in a tuxedo at the club. And he looks and from, good. He looks real good. He looks real good. at it. He looks good in any suit, but like he really fills out a tux very well. And, you know, Sean Connery did. Like he had a, he had a good, um, you know, he's the original. But mm-hmm. something about Roger Moore, like he just really pulls off that tux, you know. He's very high status. I was sort of marvelling going, I am totally into Roger Moore in this movie in a way that doesn't occur to me during the other two. But this one, I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I would go there. And he's, he's he's closing in on 50 at this point. He looks great in this movie. He's and I don't, know what's, I don't know what's come over me. I'm like, oh, oh Roger. <laughs> Goodness me, Roger. But... Yeah, it's it's strange. I think just the tux and he's grown more confident in the role. They've let him be the kind of Bond that he wants to be, which is the suave type with the droll quips, some of which, again, are not really puns. They're just weird lines. Weird lines that <laughs> make him sound vaguely sociopathic, but anyway. Yes, but he it works and he just looks really good. And then the next thing on my list, sorry, brief aside, and he's in a shake outfit. He's in the desert. 
Yes. Oh, God, I completely forgot about that. And they play <laughs> the theme from Lawrence of Arabia. What, that's when Bond and Amosova are walking through the desert. Oh, sorry. Yes, it was. No, I, I beg your pardon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But so, he is. Because uh, I remember thinking when he, was dri- when he was riding around in the full shake outfit, which I'm not sure why that was needed. I yes. was like, this is like something out of Lawrence of Arabia. And then later on, they play the they, Lawrence of Arabia theme. They play the Lawrence of Arabia theme. And apparently they play some other sort of homages to other films. Uh, oh, no, Dr. Zhivago, when um, Amasova's little ticker goes off. Oh, yes, yeah, her alarm tone. Her, yeah, that is, is uh... Dr. Zhivago theme. So Bond, because the thing is, he's going to this shake to learn information. But it's so weird because you're like, it's not really explained why Bond has, what my reaction was. I'm not explaining this very well. To me, it's really confusing to just have like instant cut to Bond in full shakes outfit on a camel. <laughs> or was he on a horse? I can't remember. Like in the desert. No, it was a camel. And, and I'm like, I think they have airports and planes in Cairo. I feel like you could have just flown yeah. in. Like in 1977, from... pretty sure that that was a thing. <laughs> but then it becomes obvious, oh, right, he's got to go and see this sheikh who has information on how he finds the dude in Cairo. But then it's, doubly, it's doubly confusing, though, because he's the Egyptian contact that they need to make contact with to sort of find their way in but he's also an old school friend of james's yes well he they went to cambridge together so strange and of course he has a harem yes and they're all white chicks i know that that's super weird i kind of thought well at least maybe okay i don't know i don't know what the politics are of someone (laughs) i don't think the actor playing the sheikh was actually egyptian oh And so maybe they've just gone, ah, we'll just uh, we'll just get some hot chicks in to <laughs> distract people. <laughs> to distract people. Don't think about it too hard. Yes, Edward D'Souza, a British character actor and graduate of RADA of Portuguese, Indian, and English descent. So okay, all right. yeah, that makes Very sense. Good. Let me see what else he was in. He appeared as the lead in the Doctor Who story Mission to the Unknown, the only story ever broadcast in the series not to feature the Doctor in any capacity. Yeah, that was during uh, the first Doctor's era when um, uh, William Hartnell would be frequently sick. He would have to take days off. Ah, okay. There you go. He okay. was in The Golden Compass with Nicole Kidman in 2007. That's the most recent thing that I could find that people might recognise. <laughs> anyway, so he, yeah, so he's he's a British guy with Portuguese Indian. So of course there was a large Portuguese contingent who settled in India around Goa. So he's of that descent. So you know he's not totally white, but yeah, he's one of those persons whose ethnicity is ambiguous enough that he can play a range of of roles. That's right. Uh, so yeah, so he has a um, you know, can I offer you to to stay for the night and he's like no i must be getting on oh look here's a hot chick he's like when in egypt one must sample no one must delve deep into its many treasures <laughs> <laughs> what a line oh uh, i mean yeah look it's it's bond it's the sexist like oh look here's some ladies i'm just going to entertain myself with for tonight i know all that but i still don't care because i'm a terrible person Stu. i'm a terrible person <laughs> You're objectively terrible, Natalie. I'm objectively objectifying people. You know, it, it wouldn't happen today, but it's the Roger Moore era of just like 
sex on plates and you know well, and that's the thing like, like you know like you, you're right like it wouldn't happen today and there's many reasons for that and most of them are good but you know <laughs> it is definitely the thing that especially now like several of the previous movies you've just been like oh i'm talking about the color this is pretty bad but you know stuff like this you, you get the sense that even the movie is in on the joke they're like yeah he meets a man and he has a harem because it's in egypt sure and the, and the other thing about bond and i'm going to say this and probably sound weird here's a thesis for you i get the feeling that roger moore's bond is a very sensitive and nurturing lover <laughs> like sure right the the vibe i get as a straight white woman so this is just my vibe the vibe i get is that he's someone who's super down for sex and super sure. down for good sex between people absolutely you, you and think the one the, the, he's the he's the bond where his dick really is magical well, yes, but also I think he's the Bond who cares about the other person's experience, you know? Like... Yeah, he wants the other... He wants the, the lady to have a good time as well. Exactly. Um, and I'm not saying other Bonds don't, but, I, you know, I just feel it more with Roger Moore. More <laughs> with Moore. Feel it more with Roger Moore. Roger Moore with Roger Moore. Um, but yeah, he, like I get, I get the vibe that he's, he's, and, and that's how he's kind of played the character is this seduct, seducer. And so, yes, he might, I'm sure he probably, you know, hits it and quits it, but I get the sense that women are like, well, I've had a fantastic time and he, he's gone, but you Whereas know, what? you don't get that, you don't get that feeling with Sean Connery. Yeah. Yes. But not to the, not to the degree with Roger Moore. Like, yes. they really... I, I, don't get me wrong. I, I totally get what you're saying. I'm just sort of interrogating it now because as soon as you said it, I was like, yeah, that makes total sense. Okay. Why is that? So, okay. I feel like if there's a kink for Sean Connery, there's probably a bit of B, um, BDSM in there. Do you know what I mean? Sure. Like, I yeah, get yeah. Oh, no, absolutely. <laughs> Sean Connery might be into some kinky stuff, whereas yeah. Roger Moore is kind of like, hey, I'm just going to kiss you all over and... It's going to be incredibly like, intimate. And... Plain, plain vanilla, but like top quality, plain yeah. vanilla. He's not afraid to indulge your wildest fantasy. Because <laughs> he's more Roger Moore, you know? Exactly. He'll, he'll get his satisfaction in a numerous number of ways. Uh, you know, there are a lot of factors that play into his enjoyment. He's of happy situation. if you're happy. Exactly, Stu. So he, I mean, look, the fact that when he goes to see Fekesh, and there's a woman there because there's always a woman there. And she's like, oh, he's not here, <laughs> but can I help you? And he's like, well, I did just have lunch, but I can always make room for dessert and just starts pashing on. And then she's all like, oh, no, yeah. don't come. Like, this is what I mean. Like, yes, there's a bit of magic penis there, but also this was a woman who knew that she hasn't had sexual satisfaction in a long time, you know. <laughs> I don't know if she was Fekesh's wife or just uh, some random. I don't know. But this is a woman who went, oh, my God, I'm about to have an incredible experience right now. Mm, and then um, so she doesn't like, wait, want. No. Yeah, wait, no. And then he uses her as a human shield because that's. Yeah, because, of course, he does, because that's very Bondian. That's very Bondian. But had he not had his life in danger, he would have powered away on that lady. He would have. <laughs> he would have given her the best experience of her life and she would for the rest of her life 
be thinking about that time in Cairo when a strange, tall Englishman would have been just came into my house and made sweet love to me all afternoon until we could hear exactly. the daily cries of the call to Allah at the minaret and the the. She danger. would have been thinking about Natalie. She would have been thinking about the spy who loved me. Yes, you see, mm. the spy. He's the spy who loved me. I don't think Perfect. Sean Curry could be the spy who loved me. No, no, I don't think he could either. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think George Lazenby could. Maybe Piers Brosnan. I'll give him that. I quite fancy Maybe Piers, Piers but Brosnan. Yes. So, look, that's a 10-minute sidebar about Roger Moore's sexuality. <laughs> <laughs> that, you know, I'm going to say. Definitely needed. Uh, we we needed to interrogate that, and I think we've fully, uh, we've fully uh, interrogated that now. You know, we need to really be critical thinkers, Stu. And if you're not being, Absolutely. if you're not, if inter- you're not thinking about which bond would do you right, <laughs> you know, what are we even doing here new with poll, this podcast? New poll. Call in with which bond would do you right and why. <laughs> like, yeah, show your work. Show your work. Demonstrate which bond you think would be the ultimate lover because, you know, <laughs> and what about them, you know, is, is what's tripping your trigger. <laughs> Hard work for the listeners out there. You know, I guess particularly straight women and gay men, you know, but but straight men. Look hey, at straight you. men get on board too. I, you know, look I, I'm, you. I'm right there with, with Natalie, you know. I mean, Roger Moore is easily – I mean, you know, he, he and Pierce Brosnan are kind of in the – kind of neck and neck in the which one do you think is, is the best lover. You know, <laughs> I, I feel like several of the other Bonds are a little bit more damaged. Like, you know, Daniel Craig's not, not thinking about anyone but himself, you know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, I'm like, I'd go there, of course. I'm not going to oh, say. Oh, sure. <laughs> because, I mean, that's a full body experience. Like, those abs. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that, 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 that's an experience. Yeah, the whole musculature is like, you know, it would be like having sex with, you know, a sculpture. It'd be like having <laughs> sex with a statue of David, but I assume probably. It would be like having sex with a leather couch. <laughs> Who did you say that was? Daniel Craig. Yeah, Daniel Craig. Yeah, <laughs> just just all all hard surfaces and. <laughs> <laughs> See, I thought when you said that the couch, you're referring to like Roger Moore and his his bronze tan. <laughs> <laughs> no, Ro- Roger Moore's like a like having sex with a velvet jacket. Yes, actually, that's a that's a that's a good idea. Yeah, a velvet no velveteen, not not the real thing. Velveteen jacket. Yeah, I think that's what Dean is. It's like a fake velvet, but I could be wrong. So yeah, I'm I'm you know I'm down for Daniel, but I feel like that's an endurance event. You got to stretch beforehand, you know. You got to limber up. <laughs> You're gonna <laughs> like, whew, I'm going in, Daniel Craig. <laughs> and then you know Pierce Brosnan, I feel like would be a lot of verbal kind of. I feel like there'd be a lot of verbal flirting and stuff oh, like dirty. that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, a bit of dirty talk, that sort of thing. Timothy Dalton, I kind of feel like it might happen and you wouldn't remember. <laughs> <laughs> I'm being very mean to Timothy Dalton. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's very handsome in his own way. Uh, a bit gruff, maybe? Yes. maybe. Maybe he's a bit more, look, I'm I'm done and then, you know, let's have some chips or something. You know? per- yeah, exactly, yeah, a bit more perfunctory. Yeah, just a, a bit more like, all right, we're done. Let's 
watch some football or something. Like I get that <laughs> kind of vibe. But then after we rewatch the Dalton films, I might change my mind. But I definitely think the most interested in women's bodies and women's pleasure is probably Roger Moore. No, no, I think I think that's an incredibly that's actually a an incredibly insightful observation. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just I'm not trying to, you know, get away from anything wrong that the Roger Moore Bond does. But I think that, you know, to talk about uh, to kind of be intimate and to be into women's pleasure, maybe that's a reason why women loved Bond and particularly like sure. Roger Moore because you sort of get this vibe that, well, you might have a good time with him. Like he's not just going to like beat you in the face or like he's he's going <laughs> to yes. take some time to get to know you as a woman. Absolutely. For An interesting counterpoint to that is my wife, Rose, who uh, watched this film with me and at the end commented uh, that, so James Bond is like a sex predator, right? <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> I was like, well, he's not not a sex predator. <laughs> I love Rose so much. <laughs> it's pretty great. But yeah, no, she she was she was deeply off put. The the scene that really tipped her over the edge was that scene where he goes to meet that lady. Or he goes to meet Fakesh and and meets that lady instead and just, like, makes a move on her straight away. She was like, oh, come on, really? Like, but this is the world of spies. You know, people's sexual mores sure. are totally different in that world, Stu. They're a lot more open-minded. You know, as Bond says to Anya, you know, we, we work in a dangerous industry. You know, our lives are at risk every day. So when that's hanging over your head, of course you're just going to go, you know what, strange Englishman walks into my room, you know, I'm here because of some dodgy deal the bloke I live with or whatever is doing. You know, it could all end in a minute, so I might as well get some. You sure, know? get on it. Rose is perfectly entitled to her opinion and is quite valid <laughs> in her opinion. But just... extremely, I mean, it's backed up by the text. <laughs> Ah, um, yes, so that all stemmed from the James Bond as a chic uh, shake. <laughs> yes. As a chic, uh, which reminds me of Rud- Rudolph Valentino because he was in that movie The Shake, The Chic, The Shake. How is it pronounced? I'm like, I'm getting it wrong now. This is Jif Gif all over again. I'm now going to have to call a chic shake. But <laughs> yes, because he played a chic shake, Rudolph Valentino, and all these women like went crazy and threatened to kill themselves if he wouldn't love them and stuff like that. Like he was one of the first big crazy, what do you call them? Like fanboy, like matinee idol, well, Hollywood idol type guy. Yeah, heartthrob, heartthrob. Heartthrob, yeah. There were newspaper articles about how crazy everyone went. He was like the Franz list of the 1920s. <laughs> yes. With Lister Main. <laughs> exactly, yes. Very good I, reference. I have this long list somewhere in my brain of just cool historical shit that I think would make great TV series or a movie. I just want to mm. make it's been done. I don't know, but like a movie. You know how they have you watched The Great? The Catherine the Great? I'm I'm three episodes in and it is amazing. It's pretty good. Don't take it as history. <laughs> No, no, it's not. It, 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 it self-admittedly is very loosely based on yeah. history. Yes, and it's great fun. It's really good fun. And Sasha Dewan from Doctor Who, the master, is so good. So good. Oh, God, there's a whole bunch of them in there who are great. But Everyone's great. I feel that like show. That the way that they kind of modernise history and everyone speaks very contemporarily. Oh, mm. Nicholas Holt as Peter. Yeah, uh, oh, great. When, Amazing. When you finish watching the series, I want to talk to you about it because – he is phenomenal, that actor. He is 
what he does with that character and how he makes you feel about that character, and I don't want to say too much more, but just extraordinary, extraordinary stuff. Like Game of Thrones level of character adoration, but we can talk about that another time. But in the way that that series modernises, I guess, or contemporises Catherine the Great, I always think there would be a great show in Franz Liszt and Listomania. Um, yeah, absolutely. Who don't know he's the famous composer and pianist who was like the Mick Jagger, David Bowie. Yeah, he, he was, he, and like way more than Mick Jagger. This, this is the the, the insane <laughs> thing. Like he was, Fan he level. was every single, yeah, like every single, like, like the Beatles times the Rolling Stones times like Elvis, times like, One Direction times Backstreet yeah. Boys times ins- like that level of crazy. Like just that level of insane fandom where people would like rip their dresses open at his concerts and and like attack him in the street you know yeah. like just insanity because he played with such flair and he you know he was all emotional and stuff and all these women are like oh my god i love him i love him and i think a movie or a tv show about that kind of era and like fandom but in the early 1800s i think it was god i can't remember late yeah. 1700s but in that time, what fandom was like? How do you have fandom yes. for fandom as we know it? <laughs> so producers, contact me. I'm available. Not doing a lot at the moment. <laughs> um, we can work up a, a spec script. It'll be fine. Yeah, let's do that. Oh, God, I need to do some. I have so many ideas, but I never have the ability or dedication to sit down and go, <laughs> yeah, let me do some research and write this. And I'm like, oh, God. Anyway, should I get back to my list? <laughs> yes. <laughs> The next point on my list was written in all caps, in very large letters, boldly scribbled over multiple times, I want to be triple X. <laughs> so we finally we finally found your uh, insertion character yeah. into, the, into the franchise. You want to be triple X. I want to be her because you know what I've always said is why I like Bond films is like, I don't want to be a Bond girl. I mean, sure, but I want to be Bond. And she's the best of both worlds. She's and the she Bond is. girl who is basically Bond. Yeah, she has henchmen early on, Ivan and Bond, who, like, fight Bond at the pyramids and he knocks them out and then she later apologises for them and you never see them again. But that's the only time (laughs) that she's not, you know, she's not physical in that sense. She's got goons who come in and then he's like, okay, I'm off. Although you do get the sense that, like, if she had to, she could throw it down. Yeah, well, she knows karate or some sort of martial art. She's always, like, putting a hand up and whoop when she's taken off the submarine and the some henchman, like, pushes her in the back and knocks her hat off and she, like, Foof! Yeah, Shop. she ba- bashes yeah. him, which is great. Oh, God, I like violence on men. It's a weird thing. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> it's just really satisfying sometimes. But so can we talk about Anya Amasova or should I just finish my list? Cause, uh, you no, know no, what? no, let, let, let's do it. I'll get back to it because the things on my list are uh, tangential. Lotus Esprit okay. was about. Great. Ski jump, Amazing. talked about. The fact that the plot has the Soviets and the British working together. Yes, yeah, um, yeah, which is actually a neat little twist on previous Bond films. Yeah, and which is not the case in You Only Live Twice. That's, you know, Britain given a chance to solve the problem before the Soviets and the US go to war together. However, yeah. it does bring up one important potential plot hole, which is why does Stromberg capture a British sub if the subs he wants to destroy are aiming at Moscow and New York, which is America and Russia? Well, I always got the idea that 
Oh, actually, no, you're right, because they're on the they're on the American sub when they get captured, aren't they? Yeah, and they get back on the American sub. Yeah. But why... Yeah, so why does he capture a British one? Why doesn't he just capture a US one and a USSR and then fire them at each other so he can blame them? Yeah. Why is Britain involved? That, that, because they need to get Bond involved, yeah, exactly. Maybe it's a test. Um, Maybe it was a test. Maybe yeah, it, was... it, might, it might have been a test of the technology, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> That's a very good point. I hadn't yeah. even thought of that, but yeah. I hadn't even thought of that until I watched it this time and went, why is there a British? Oh, that's right, because <laughs> still showing that it has international clout. So, woohoo. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> that's we need to take Britain off the board first. That's what uh, the really? okay. franchise is all about, maintaining cultural power <laughs> in the declining face of actual political power. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right, exactly. So, and then my final thing was the escape pod, which we briefly mentioned, but we can talk about oh, yes. a bit later. But yes, yes so Triple X, I love her. I didn't realize that Bar- good. Barbara Bach was American. I think I must have read that somewhere, but oh, I think really? I assume she was German or something with Bach in the surname, but. No, she's American. Apparently got turned down for some roles later on. I think she auditioned for Charlie's Angels or something like that, and they thought she was, like, too European and, like, higher class. Right, <laughs> like, because because she'd been in a Bond film. No, no, I think because she looks so, like, her cheekbones and her... her yeah, oh, she, she has an, an astonishing look. Like, she is striking in her features. Like, Jesus, like, just such a unique face. You know, yeah. like like not not unattractive. She she's stunningly beautiful, but like in a very unconventional way, which is really interesting. Yeah, I, I don't even know what to say about it. She's like carved from marble. Like her face is just <laughs> like it's not that it's like sharp. Her face is just carved. Like she's got rounded features and cut cheeks and big eyes, and mm. she's just so magnetic to look at. I think the thing is though, like she was in a lot of European films. I think uh, was that the was that the thing? Like like in her early career, she was in a lot of like European and British films, and so that maybe gave people the idea that she was too European. Um, yes, she was a model, and you're right. Her acting career started in Italy, where she played Nausicaa in L'Odyssea in 1968, an eight-hour-long TV adaptation of Homer's poem, The Odyssey. Oh, wow. She was also in – yeah, you're right. She was in Italian films a lot. In the, oh, okay, right, right. Including one called The Black Belly of the Tarantula. She said that she lost the audition for Charlie's Angels because they felt she was too sophisticated in attitude and look and thought that she was not American even though she was born in Queens and raised there in New York City. Yeah, but she's married to Ringo Starr. Yes, well, famously, yeah, and, and still is, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, like, he'd be an idiot because she's amazing. Oh, um, well, yeah, exactly, but... She seems but, you know, to... like those those marriages don't often like, like sometimes they they don't last, but it seems like that's kept on, which is great. Mm, she's um, very involved with charity now, I think. So yeah, clearly, I'm being very objective. I'm ju- you know I'm judging her based on her looks, but I I'm a jealous woman who does not look like Barbara Bach. So and also every outfit she wears in this film is phenomenal, and I want in my wardrobe. Like her wardrobe in this film is timeless it's classic it is sexy as hell that mm. dress that she wears in the club with bond oh, fantastic it's something else it's this midnight navy blue with the diamante trim around the shoulder and the back the split leg and split then leg pl- plunging neckline like it's just line. it's incredible and she runs around a temple building site you know, an Egyptian building site in it, walks across the desert in it, drives Jaws' truck 
in the heels, gets out of there, while Bond is snipping at her, like, oh, do you want me to drive? (laughs) She's doing all this in a ball gown. And then when they get on the boat after they get out of the desert, she's got a cigarette case strapped to her inner thigh or out of that. She has walked through the desert stew in a ball gown <laughs> with a cigarette case strapped to her thigh. You respect that. Absolutely. Men with your flat shoe. No, that, that is commitment. But I will say Roger Moore, when he gets off the boat and she's already legged it and he's wearing like just the tucks but with the bow tie undone, the shirt still on and the jacket over the shoulder, I've decided that that is the hottest look for a man. <laughs> it's like formal but but just a little bit, just dial it back. Two and, notches. Well, D- Daniel Craig's had that look a fair bit as his Bond is like the tux but with the bow tie, you know, particularly in Casino Royale, like the form-fitting shirt, the jacket over the shoulder, but the bow tie like undone and a couple of buttons undone. That is dead sexy. <laughs> I don't know why men on the red carpet aren't just walking on like that. Like the end of night look <laughs> should be the start of the night look. It's yeah, absolutely. so hot. I was just sitting there going, wow, I can't believe I'm now obsessed with men in slightly undone tuxedos. <laughs> like a tuxedo like six or seven hours into the night. That's what I'm here for. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the, night, the night's wrapping up. You might be having a, a, a final conversation and a couple of drinks with friends. You know, you've just... Thinking re- about going back to your hotel room. Yeah, you've relaxed a bit. The bow ties come undone. It's just sitting around the neck there, just sitting down on the collarbones. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so the combination... Very nice. Okay. Well, we, we've, we've made some discoveries to, to this, <laughs> uh, this podcast. I like it. <laughs> The dual image of Bond with the tuxedo collar down and Barbara Bark in her ball gown, but, and I I critically Mm. need to add this thing, with her hair tied back. It is walking yes. through the desert. Yes, yeah, yeah. It's the sexiest fucking thing. I just, I was watching it going, <laughs> so sexy. Like the pair of them just looks great. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. The fact that she has her hair tied back just makes me like, ah, because even in this film, she's got her hair out a fair bit where it's a big complaint from me anyway that so many women, sure. superhero women too, but they fight, have massive big fight scenes with the hair like everywhere. Like I can't cook dinner with my hair out. Like I have to... <laughs> You know, I have to pin it up or yeah. pin it a little bit back or put a band around half of it just to keep it off my face while I'm trying to concentrate. And then these women are all apparently doing superhero. Buffy was a big one for it. Always had the hair down, killing vampires. I'm like, you need well, to it's a good way. It's a good way to mask a stunt woman is the, is the trouble. I get it. <laughs> but then what do men do when they've got short hair and they have stunt men? Like, can't we be? Yeah, I mean, that, that's true. Occasionally you'll see a, a woman in a fight scene with her hair pinned back and I'm always like, yes practicality so the fact that barbara bark has got her hair tied back is like just a big thumbs up from me again small moments small detail that make me love this film even more so that's the end of my official list can we talk about the switch out the little bait and switch at the start where she's in bed with her lover and the message comes through triple x come on you gotta get and then you think it's him because it's like a bond and we're putting our best agent on it and because we're all sexist we go oh it must be him he's having like aha that's what bond would do the lady was a doctor exactly the mother was the doctor and then you know he gets out of bed going oh and she's like triple x message received and understood and you're like whoa a chick a lady spy. A lady spy who's the best they have. It's a very cool It's a very cool little fake out and it, it sets the tone for the rest of the film. Although it doesn't quite, the conceit is that he's got to go because he has a mission which turns out to be the mission on the ski fields in Austria where Bond killed him. 
But oh, of course. I never I never put that together. I guess the conceit is that they're both being notified at the same time. But then he's got to get from wherever they are to Austria pretty quickly to shoot Bond. Mm. So there's a time difference there that doesn't quite make sense. You you have you have notes. You have notes. So let, let, let's let's go through a few things. I just want to go through a few things and just kind of tick off little things that made me laugh. So this is just like in order of watching the film. This is just verbal diarrhea. So on the sub, mm-hmm. the very beginning, pre-credit sequence, there's a whole bunch of boobs on the wall. I don't know if you noticed. The sailors have just boobs. There's just all these topless women in the canteen. Oh, right, okay. The wall. Well, I you just, know, all male crew. That's right. 1977. I, I just noticed that and went, I've never noticed that before. It's just all boobs. There is a very Jurassic Park shake of the cups when the electrics start being messed with on the sub. Like the, the sailors look at their coffee cups and they're oh, shaking. The, yeah, the coffee cups. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure that's not a super new thing, but I was like, that's Jurassic Park. The song, Carly, Simon. No. Oh, yes. God. What a what a great Bond theme. It's so good. And it was written by Marvin Hamlish. Oh, sorry. It was composed by him, written by his then female partner and then sung by Carly Simon. And it's just, it's so joyful, <laughs> you know? It's, yeah. it's not like beware of this villain, which a lot of them are. It's all like how great is this guy slash girl because it could be about both of them. The Spy Who Loved Me could apply to both X and Bond. Yeah, so. exactly, exactly. I mean, you know, it's a James Bond film, so it's probably about Bond. But um, you're right, like there is that dual dual meaning. It's good. Yeah. The, the weird thing for me is that I have a little bit of, of a problem with the theme only because for many, many years it was used as the theme for a local real estate company, LJ Hooker. Yes. Um, in their in their advertising. And so every time I hear it, I think like, LJ Hooker, okay. you're the best. I know. Anyone probably in Queensland, I'm not sure if they're around Australia, but certainly anyone in Brisbane and southeast Queensland would know that ad campaign. It's very ubiquitous. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It was definitely their campaign in the, in the 90s. There was a big television and, and radio campaign of LJ Hooker, you're the best. No. Although they did play a classical music piece in this film. Let me tell you what it was because I'm I was like, I know that piece of music. That's a classical piece of music. When Stromberg is is thanking the two men who've built his tracking system, his submarine tracking system. I realize we haven't actually mentioned the plot of this film at any point, but that's fine. <laughs> Basically, we, again, we've nibbled around the edges. Wants to track submarines from world power so he can kidnap them with his giant mouth-opening ship. That's about it. And he has these two scientists work on this submarine tracking system and then says, thank you very much. It obviously works. Here's your $10 million each and a helicopter off my crazy, stupid base. And <laughs> then he says, but someone's been trying to sell the plans. So I'm very worried about this. And then tells his female dining companion, you better leave us. She goes in the elevator, he presses a button, and boom, elevator, floor, opens. She is shark food. Yeah, she drops into the shark tank. When she gets in the elevator, there is a music. The da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. That is Bach's Air on the G-String, which is a very funny title for a song in modern parlance. Um, <laughs> but that is an in-joke because at the time that piece of music was used in a cigar commercial which had a, I don't know, it just said, it says here it was famous for accompanying disappointed characters in Hamlet cigar commercials. So I imagine, right. you know, like the Mentos Fresh Goes Better. And, yes. You yeah, know, yeah. I imagine, or, or Minty's, it's moments like these, you know, where they have like a, a sort of a series of ads based around a theme. I wonder if the theme was people like being disappointed that they weren't smoking the right brand of cigar or something. And they play this music. <laughs> so when people hear it, they go, ah, oh, it's like, ah, oh, it's 
because she's disappointed him or something. Isn't that fascinating? Like those references that just sort of fall away, like because they're, like they're not current anymore, and so and you have yeah. no reference for them, and so they just become part of the movie. Yeah, I love it. Having to look up old references is so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> This movie just makes me happy. This movie just makes me laugh, makes me happy. It's so ridiculous. It's so fun. There's so much action. There's a fight scene or a tense scene or around every corner. As I said, it was able to surprise me with having Jaws in the train. I just forgot about that. So let's talk about this movie then as we wrap up. What are your thoughts on where you're going to put it in your list? It seems to me that this is Roger Moore's Goldfinger, right? Like, this is the Roger Moore film. If you were to say to someone, like, if you were to say to someone, like, what's Sean Connery's James Bond about? You obviously put on Goldfinger, Mm. you know? I think if you want to say to someone, okay, so Roger Moore, what's the best Roger Moore James Bond? Like, what's what's the best example of his time with the series? And I think you could strongly make the argument for this film. Like, this is arguably his best. Yeah. We've yet to revisit some of the others, but there's, I know personally, there are some series low points in our future. Um, and they're like some good ones and some ones. There's one just next week, Moonraker, which I want to be good. I want it to be good so badly because I remember loving it as a kid. Yeah, me too. I suspect it's pretty bad. No. Um, I've heard it's pretty bad. It's going to come good. It's going to come good. It's okay. I'm sure it'll come good. But I know for I know for a fact that there are definitely movies in our future in the next couple of weeks that are some of the worst Bond films, let alone Roger Moore Bond films. So, I mean, I think it's fair to say that this is the best Roger Moore Bond. And for that reason, like, it's Roger Moore's version of this franchise operating on all all cylinders, you know? And, And so in that way, I feel like it's Moore's Goldfinger. This version of the franchise operating at peak capacity. Everything's working. Everything's dovetailing into each other nicely. You know, it's just working, and it's so fun to see. It's such a such a wonderful, fun experience to watch this movie. It's just such a comeback after The Man with the Golden Gun particularly, which, again, yeah. had fun elements but lacked the cohesiveness or lacked the theme or lacked the joy, and everything here then just fires. And yeah. it must have been such a relief for them to go, oh, wow, we're back in the saddle. We're and- back, baby. Yeah, and what's interesting is because at the end of this film, you know, you see the credits where it says James Bond will return into your eyes only, but he does not. Yes. They they Star Wars comes out the same year as this. <laughs> and all of a sudden plans change. So Absolutely. That's how dynamic they can be, I guess. They're like, "Wait, we've got to do something spacey. Wait, there's a title called Moonraker. Let's put James Bond in space." <laughs> Which we will obviously talk more about next week. So, look, I know where I'm putting this film. Do you know where you're putting this film? Okay. I agonized over this for quite a long time, actually, because my my current list goes number one, Goldfinger, number two, From Russia With Love, number three, Diamonds Are Forever. And I was like, does it go above Diamonds Are Forever? Because I really like Diamonds Are Forever. Like, I, I... A lot of that is nostalgia, but I do really like Diamonds Are Forever. But I was like, you know what? Like, Diamonds Are Forever is like the final Sean Connery. Like, it's definitely on the downward slope of his time in the series. And Diamonds Are Forever, as we talked about, is kind of a blueprint for these Roger Moore movies. So in that respect, I was like, you know what? I think it has to go in number three for me. So I think it has to go Goldfinger from Russia with Love and then The Spy Who Loved Me. I think it has to go for number three. I can't put it above From Russia With Love because From Russia With Love is a very good film. 
I'm on the same wavelength as you. This goes number two for me. This goes straight Wow, up. okay, yeah. To, to, to the point where having watched this one, I had so much fun watching it. I'm like, if I was judging on fun yeah. of watching, it would probably be number one. But in terms of like wow. the character and at this point anyway, and, and look, it's very hard. I It doesn't quite reach for me the Goldfinger level of it's Connery, it's Bond, it's Pussy Galore. Yeah. It, you know, it's the, the, Bond. You Goldfinger is such a good villain, you know, and Stromberg is not quite there. But just everything in this film feels like just spark and life and fun. And so that's why it's always number two. And I agree with you. It's the best Roger Moore. It's going to be very hard for any film to top my one-two list, which has been my one-two yeah, for my whole life, basically, <laughs> since I was able to form a pin. <laughs> and the rewatch has not dislodged those. So for me, no, interest yeah. is, is more filling out the rest of the top five and the top ten. You know, it's it's where things sit in that scale. I'm not necessarily judging on the quality of the writing or the quality of the acting or the quality of the story. You know, it's just that there's that magical element. Maybe it's the penis. I don't know. Maybe it's <laughs> <laughs> maybe it's the magical penis element of James Bond. So. James Bond's magical penis was inside us all along. <laughs> Wish, man. Uh, but, the, yeah, the, the, the point is, is it's not so much about rearranging the very top, but this rewatch is all about going, well, do I, do I still like those things? And for the mm. ones that I've maybe rated further down in the past or not thought of that much, do they actually factor back up in my estimation? Are, are there surprises? Yeah. So I, I think I'll be very surprised if anything were to disrupt, particularly that top two. So I don't want people to stop listening, yeah. though. <laughs> what <will we> have? <laughs> hey, it could. It could still. You never know. There's all these surprises left in store. It's almost more interesting, as I say, to look at those other films that fill out your top fives and your top tens. Like, where do they sit? You know, it's almost unfair to go, oh, which one will win, quote, unquote, win. Anyway, so number two for me, number three for you. That's it. Well, this has been a long and lengthy podcast, um, <laughs> possibly as long as Thunderball. I don't know. <laughs> no, Natalie, uh, as, as I keep saying to you, Thunderball was, in fact, uh, a full 82 hours long. <laughs> we're up to 82 hours now. It's astonishing it? how long that movie was. I don't, know, I don't know how they were able to get it into theatres. I mean, the reels alone. <laughs> uh, you know. Just think of the toilet breaks that people had to have. Exactly. Yeah, you had to schedule toilet breaks in there. It was like it would stretch over several days. Like a, there was a whole matinee situation. It was it was ridiculous. I don't know. That Dinner film was poorly conceived. Sleeping times. <laughs> yes, exactly. In, in hindsight, that is why uh, you know several of the underwater sequences uh, were put into the film uh, so that you could actually just take a nap during them. <laughs> well. On that note, we will return <laughs> next week to discuss Moonraker. I've had so much fun chatting with Spy Who Loved Me. We've gone super long, but this is a great this is a great movie, and this, this was wonderful to to talk about. Deep dive into the Spy Who Loved Me. So thank you, James Bond. Thank you, Roger Moore, for giving your all in this film. Bless you, you crazy old giant nipples. <laughs> oh, more always gives more. And we will see you next week for Moonraker. And until then. I'm Natalie. And I'm Stu. And we're shaken. Not stirred. Baby, baby, baby. Oh, yeah, you're the best. Etc. <laughs>